Hello, I am Katerina Sliva. I am a partner at Dentons in the Real Estate Group. I'm also the head of our land use planning, municipal and development law group. I help our developer and landowner clients secure zoning and other development approvals for their projects. I am the lead of our Canada Smart Cities Think Tank. I am also your host for the Smart Cities Chat Podcast Series, brought to you by Dentons. This podcast series covers a broad range of topics within the Smart Cities space. Everything from drones, communication, 5G, privacy and related issues, P3s, transportation and smart mobility, sustainable, smart communities, and much, much more. You can find our episodes at www.dentons.com on our podcast page. There you can access our episodes as well as an episode description for each topic and information on our speakers. And now over to our podcast. Our next session is on smart, sustainable communities from the ground up. And we have three panelists that I am pleased to introduce you to today. Um, A lot of the audience will will know um, Tim Kane. Tim is the Orbit Director for the Town of Innisfil. Over the last 10 years, Tim has evolved to his current position after leading the growth services team at the town. His role delivering the Innisfil Mobility Orbit is a unique opportunity to strive for and implement next practices that tackle growth challenges and improve quality of life for Innisfil's residents. Tim plays a key role in the innovative culture at Innisfil, including the development of Innisfil Transit powered by Uber. Uh, Tim's previous life, or in his previous life, he worked as a planning consultant in Canada and in Australia, acting on behalf of national and international clients for a variety of commercial, industrial, residential, and institutional projects. Tim has a master's of environmental studies um, in regional planning and resource development and honors bachelor of science as a registered RPP and is a full member of the Canadian Institute of Planners. And uh, joining Tim today, uh, we have Michael Malinshin, uh, Michael joined the team at the town of Venezville in early 2020 as CFO and Director of Corporate Services and Deputy Treasurer and CFO of, of for In Services, the town's water, wastewater, municipal service corporation. He has significant private sector experience in regional, national, and international organizations, serving as CFO for the last 15 years. He has expertise in streamlining operations to improve processes using lean concepts and developing comprehensive strategic plans to help organizations succeed. Michael has closely partnered with the community chairing several economic development and industry boards. He has worked with municipal councils to encourage businesses to expand or relocate into communities. His partnership with various colleges and universities has also helped businesses grow by adopting the latest advanced technologies into their business processes to create a competitive advantage. Michael has a passion for integrating AI, artificial intelligence, into business strategy and community development initiatives to provide better services to residents. Thank you, Michael and Tim, for joining us. And joining Michael and Tim, uh, Natalie is an up-and-coming designer with IBI's LA office in the field of architecture, building experience in a wide array of projects, including light rail station, residential, spa, medicine, hospitality, and office design. Natalie has proven her flexibility to function as a team member in the collaborative environment, most evident in her light rail and medical projects. 
She is familiar working with um, complicated and technical project requirements and relies on her strong um, BIM 3D visualization software um, skills to best communicate with different disciplines. Natalie's work has taken her far um, internationally in New York, Missouri, Toronto, and Amsterdam. This experience has gained, um, given her an appreciation for architect architectural processes in different regions. And she is passionate about sustainable design as it impacts the triple bottom line. Um, as a result, she has deeply studied the subject matter and holds cr uh, credentials with both LEED and WELL. Welcome Natalie, Tim and Michael, and thank you for joining us today. As we get started, um, and before I turn it over to you, um, I did want to frame our discussion uh, by putting forward the Denton's smart cities um, definition um, that is quite broad and flexible and um, will, I hope, uh, help facilitate your discussion, although I don't think you need much of that help. Um, so at Denton's, we have coined um, the definition of smart cities as a smart city modernizes digital, physical, and social infrastructure and integrates all essential services for the benefits of its citizens by harnessing advances in sustainable technology to make delivery of these services more efficient, useful, innovative, and equitable. It begins with the particular needs and goals of a city or community and then aims to address those needs through advanced data analytics and efficient coordinated implementation of advanced telecommunications, sensor and camera technology, traffic control, LED street lighting, deployment of electric and autonomous vehicles, smart health services, smart buildings, and so many, many, many other technologies and services. So with that, I would like to turn it over to the three of you. Uh, Natalie, Tim, and Michael, welcome. And let's get the discussion started. Tim, over to you. Thanks, Kat, and thanks so much for the opportunity uh, this afternoon. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be in such great company, not just this panel, but all the other panels today as well. So um, just before we get into the discussion, uh, much like your uh, definition of smart city, I guess I want to give a little more context about Orbit uh, in the town of Innisfil. So um, we are about an hour north of Toronto, and um, it does make potentially for a good slogan, the town of Avon, but um, I'll come back to that uh, in a moment. Um, we have quite a few things going for us, and you know, as a result, growth is coming our way. You know, we have uh, 400 series highway, which obviously is a big driver of growth. Uh, we have Lake Simcoe on two sides. Uh, we have a Metrolinx rail line, and just last week or the week before, uh, a new hospital was announced um, right beside our town campus. So uh, there's a lot going on, and and that's principally what's driving growth into um, this region, and particularly into the into Innisfil, and you know, those things that are driving the growth for Orbit as well. So. You know, there's two drivers for that. Uh, a few years ago, Metrolinx announced a, a new station, uh, proposed GO station in the town of Innisfil, which we were super excited about. Uh, and then recently with this provincial government uh, and the transit-oriented community model, um, they gave us flexibility in how that station can be delivered and designed uh, and the neighborhoods around it. So it was a perfect time to establish, you know, a long-term vision, you know, part of our mantra about outcome-based thinking, you know, what are those, you know, what's that image, that singular image, which you can see a little bit over my shoulder um, that we want to drive towards when we're making everyday decisions uh, at the town. Um, and, you know, a big part of that too is, you know, what planning and technology can we weave into that um, and, uh, and really make a difference for our residents. And that's what we're in the process of doing right now. 
Um, we sure don't have the same level of in information understanding that many other speakers do, but we are learning and, and we're here to, to talk about that. And we're in the process of putting the meat on those bones um, with that planning process, which ultimately is going to be a 50-year plan and 150,000 people. So not happening tomorrow, but certainly looking further into the future uh, than what we do typically. And that brings a whole set of opportunities as well. Uh, and that growth is coming from, you know, when we decided on Orbit, it was, it was essentially growing in our terms um, and how we want to do that. So, you know, currently the county is, is going through a growth exercise. It's going to increase our population from 40,000 now uh, to 100,000 people um, in about 30 years. Um, and we're kind of at this awkward adolescent stage, as I describe it, whereby, you know, we're still rural, very much rural in, in many of the ways. Um, but, you know, we're getting urban expectations and we're, we're getting a more of an urban built form. Um, so how do we manage that transition and, and keep those features that um, we want to keep? And the reference to Vaughn wasn't, um, you know, wasn't an accident. You know, they were very much where we were, you know, less than 50 years ago, less than 30 years ago, even. So, you know, we've seen how, you know, development can occur. And, you know, if we choose to do that differently, then we feel that Orbit is a good way to do that. And, you know, making those purposeful decisions now um, that fundamentally, fundamentally and authentically, um, you know, embed those things like inclusivity, sustainability, technology and placemaking um, will pay dividends later on for us. So um, that's why we're that's why we're here today talking about this particular project. And Mike, I'm not sure if you want to add anything to that. I, no, beautiful summary, Tim. I think I think a key thing too is that we have a, a clean palette. We have a, basically an empty farm field with a single train track running through the middle of it. So we have the the the, the world's our oyster in this case. So we really want to catapult off that. But doing the planning and everything right now, like Innisfil is a great organization. Myself, I've only been there for a year and a half. Uh, one of my reasons and attractions were because it was so creative, innovative uh, municipality. It took on really some really, really unique things. And, and I'm just going to touch on a couple of them, Tim, if I'm, you know, touch on some of the kind of the cool things that we've done, like Tim and Tim sort of spearheaded our transit system, which is a partnership with Uber. So really great mobility of service initiative uh, that's really taken off. I think we're one of the first municipalities to do that. From a finance side, I think we're the only municipality in Canada, if not North America, to accept Bitcoin for property tax payments. Um, just trying to look at where we do, we're, we're exploring prototyping of um, autonomous sidewalks, snow plows, intelligent streetlight to helping to help us with, you know, sensor technology to tell us if our garbage cans are full, if there's an empty parking spot and tie that all back into sort of app technology to help residents and visitors, you know, um, find, quickly find a spot to park near one of our, one of our beaches. Um, there's just a lot, we have a, a really unique accelerator called the DMZ. It's, it's focusing on GovTech, so government technologies to support municipalities. And really that's an economic development tool for us, you know, to have these type of businesses settle in, in Innisfil. And so it's really, some really unique initiatives um, that we're, we're starting off with. And I think that's what is sort of spearheading the orbit. It's gonna be one, one, big, uh, one big experiment for us of, of creativity and innovation that I think we're really pushing forward to and really looking forward to pushing forward to. Tim, I'm not sure if I missed anything on that list there. No, it's fine. Thanks. That, that, that's a great overview, Mike and, and Tim. Thank you for that. Um, I know well before Orbit, Tim and I um, would occasionally uh, chat about the great things uh, that um, Innisfil was moving forward with, like the Uber solution to the transportation um, considerations um, and, and you know, the use of Bitcoin uh, or allowance of the use of Bitcoin for the payment of property taxes. Um, you know, Tim, it's interesting you 
kind of pinpointed one of the reasons that I'd asked uh, for you to join um, the summit today. And, and it's that, you know, you have a blank slate um, in, in creating um, this, this community. Um, and we hear, heard quite a bit today about um, existing um, smart cities and how they have done it, done it well uh, with, you know, Barcelona and Songdo. And uh, there are many themes that sort of um, continue to be um, a tension point or a struggle. Um, I think starting with maybe uh, data governance, it seems like whether we're talking about Uber or collection of data uh, keeps coming up. So data governance, uh, privacy challenges and that sort of thing. What, what are you um, seeing as, as some of the um, tension points that you're addressing? Mike, do you want to, uh, that's Yeah, Mike. sure. Yeah. You, the, whole, the whole data governance and the privacy thing is like, we're trying to take a preemptive strike on this. You know, we don't have the technology already embedded throughout the organization, the municipality, but we want to take that preemptive strike to say, what can we do to protect our residents? We know as we start partnering with third, third party technology providers, what can we do to maintain, make sure that our residents' privacy rights are not violated? Like the accumulation of data and moving towards a surveillance capitalism type approach is not something that we want. So we've, you know, we've, we've created a data governance strategy you know, to try and manage that and mitigate that. We've, we've in, in exploring all those, that data governance strategy, we've come across some really unique private sector organizations, not, sorry, not-for-profit organizations. And, and one is like called, is Innovate Cities out of Toronto. And they create these data trusts, like that's like, that lets this data and information be coalesced into one, you know, one database and it's all protected from a, a physical barriers, but also, you know, privacy by designs and the unique, the unique relationship that Innovate Cities has is with Dr. Ann Kavukian, who's three-time uh, Privacy Commissioner Officer of Ontario, and who is the creator of Privacy by Design principles that have rippled around the world through, you know, DTPR in Europe. And so she's she's been working with us and partnering with us uh, as a municipality, which has been a great input to try and understand her perspective and really create privacy at the source and, and not wait till the later and try and anonymize it, but really do that by design. So there's one great partnership we're working at and they create these data trusts that help us manage our data, make it accessible, make it protected for residents. And the other one is a, a company, a not-for-profit called Helpful Places. And they're really interesting because they've created this sort of signage taxonomy that identifies where we're using you know, surveillance technology and all for the purposes of tra transparency. There's, there's a, a QR code that will identify what that piece of technology highlights, what it does, what it captures, where they can find it, who's the owner of it, and really interesting, but it's these, these partnerships and the exploration of these different not-for-profit organizations have really been supportive and are just taking off and helping us create our own governance strategy to really watch and manage the privacy rights of our residents, which is foremost from my mindset. Um, Natalie, you've worked on many uh, projects um, in the United States and, and more broadly. Uh, what are your observations in terms of how uh, data and privacy has been tackled um, in the, those projects that you've been involved with? Yeah, you know, I think data is a really interesting um, point of discussion, right, for smart cities, as, as we've already spoken a bit just now. And I think it really depends on, on what you're trying to measure and what that data is being used for. Right, so I think um, on on a lot of the projects that I that I work on, it's oftentimes, um, for example, with curb space management, we're trying to collect data from TNC companies or providers like Ubers and Lyfts, and 
um, trying to use that data to better plan um, our cities, figure out you know, how much highway do we need, how much road do we need, where are we seeing congestion? And one of the things that we found a lot is that it's really it can be really challenging to get that data um, from the TNC providers because it's not data that they it's, it's commercially sensitive to them and they don't want to share it. Um, and so uh, I, that, that's something that I bumped into being um, being a, a challenge. Um, and one of the solutions that's come up in, in kind of our research on that is the idea of, of a, a third party data aggregator or an anonymizer. And I know, Mike, you're saying you're trying to collect data from the beginning. That's that that is sensitive. So you don't have to anonymize the data. But I think what I'm finding um, with both uh, uh, urban and uh, building scale projects, oftentimes um, there's just data embedded directly into the data, whether it's like through a, a, an image, right, a video image of a of cars moving around or people moving around. Um, and it's really hard to anonymize all of that all the time. Um, in addition to these like commercially sensitive organizations that might not want to share their data with third parties, uh, especially government agencies, um, and figuring out how we can still access that data without, um, you know, so if I back up a little bit, right, it's um, a big, I think, obstacle is Freedom for Information Act in the United States. Um, if you, as a third party agency or a third party company, share data to a public agency, um, there is the opportunity that that information could then get released out through the Freedom for Information Act. Um, and that's just um, for a lot of reasons, not a good idea. Um, and so uh, we're finding that, you know, having that third party aggregator allows uh, that data to be anonymized before it gets handed over to the public agency. Um, but it's, it's uh, easier said than done. Um, oftentimes the negotiations can get a little bit challenging. So I don't know, Mike, I'd be curious to see if, if kind of those are things that you've um, obstacles you face and, and how you've overcome them. I think we're, we're really exploring that, right? We're not down that far, far down the rabbit hole, but 100%, those are the things that are you know, paramount. How do you, yeah, you're, you're collecting this data. You obviously can't anonymize it all, right? And so how do you protect those rights? Um, it's not just, it's, you know, it's the third party vendors, but it's also our developers too. It's something we work with our developers because developers are gonna be absolutely critical to help us achieve some of this technology and put it into place. So we're striving, you know, to create business cases for them to make them want to do it as opposed to, you know, force them to do it under, you know, site plan control or permitting. And, and Tim, you can probably speak to this more than I can from a planning point of view, for sure. Yeah, Mike. And, you know, the other, you know, just going back to Natalie's point about the, the data sharing point of view, you know, you know, definitely a few years ago, you know, with Uber, you know, the, the data was front and center with respect to potential issues with the public. So, you know, you know, thankfully we had a relationship with Uber where, you know, we could sit down and, and talk about, you know, what our collective goals were um, and what level of data we needed to do that. So, you know, that was very powerful for us to, you know, to get access to data that we wouldn't normally have, um, knowing that it was going to be advancing, you know, those collective goals of, of both Uber and, and the town. So, you know, finding that common ground, I think, is, is a key message there. You know, when we're having these talks with tech companies, um, you know, quite often there is common ground there. They're, they're not the antichrist, despite what, you know, we may be made to believe in the media sometimes. Um, and maybe they are, but, you know, I think, you know, as long as they're there to, to help move your community forward, then you got to keep an open mind and, and find that common ground. Um, Tim, we mentioned Uber at the onset um, and, and, you know, obviously that comes up in the data privacy um, constraints or space as well, but, but uh, turning to, um, maybe we're segue, but turning to mobility 
uh, challenges? What are you, um, what are you seeing? What are you um, planning for? I know Orbit is heavily focused on uh, the major transit station area and, and, you know, in part came about because of the utilization of those uh, policies in, in provincial policies and plans. Um, and I just wondered if, if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure, Kat. The, there's, I think there's two questions there. One is the existing transit system that we have. And, um, you know, certainly we've been, we've been talking a lot about it over the last few years. And, you know, where it's at now is that, you know, thankfully it's nimble enough that we can evolve that uh, as we're moving forward. So, you know, right now we're working with Uber about, you know, what that next step looks like. You know, in the early days, it was just getting, you know, enough ridership and enough data to, to provide that basic service townwide. You know, now that the numbers are creeping up, you know, we need to look at, you know, ways to, to help save money, make that system more uh, efficient um, and build on that system as it evolves to a more of a traditional transit system, particularly as we get towards densities like orbit um, and more traditional urban framework. So, you know, it's it's been an interesting process for that to happen. And, you know, we are looking at, you know, we are, you know, the town isn't looking at individual data points, obviously, but certainly, you know, that data is forming the backbone for, you know, how we can look at that system and make that system evolve. And, you know, the fun, the fun part about that process is that, you know, our first meeting with Uber, it was, it was one person practically in a broom closet in their old Queen Street office. And now it's a team of 200 on their transit side, um, which is pretty exciting. And that's, you know, what the great thing about Orbit is to it, you know, it represents that next test bed of where we can incorporate things like rail and, and personal mobility. Um, I know Natalie, this is near and dear to your heart as well. Is that you know this holy grail of mobility as a service, where you know ultimately one day instead of spending hundred dollars a month on our cell phone bill, we can spend you know probably something comparable to that and just basically step seamlessly from you know out of our out of our condominium onto a train into a share car, um, et cetera, et cetera. So you know that's probably one of the great things about Orbit is that you know we can start creating this this ecosystem for for that to happen in you know, prepare for it and, and hopefully perpetuate it as we move forward. Yeah, and I think sometimes you mentioned it as well, Tim, right, that sometimes uh, some of these uh, TNCs and other service providers are kind of uh, considered to be the antichrist. And I, I think that that can be um, a really uh, traditional way of, of thinking about mobility. You know, I think everything evolves over time. Like we're, we're humans, right? We're not the same people we were back in the middle ages. Um, and there's a reason for that, right? I think um, it's important to look at how we're evolving, how our, our needs are, are, are changing and trying to find progressive solutions that still address all of those needs that, that we need, right? Whether it's equity, access to mobility, access to jobs, access to transportation. These are all things that matter. And there will be some stumbling blocks along the way. You know, there not every solution is gonna uh, that's that's proposed is gonna be perfect. But I think the there's a saying right that humanity is always leaning just a little bit towards the right um, and and towards a progress progress right. And I think we have to trust that to a certain extent and not be afraid to try new things. Um, and uh, and I think that's really uh, incredible that you know Innisfil was able to to kind of arrange that partnership and. And there will be a lot of evolution um, to that. So that's uh, something to look out for. And I'm, I'm very, I'm looking forward to that, honestly. <laughs> Great, thank you. Um, another form of uh, mobility that we've uh, covered a little bit today, but more from the um, construction um, process and, and, and kind of prop tech angle um, are drones. Uh, I know from discussions with Tim and, and Mike, that's, Another area that you're um, 
you know, trying to figure out and, and, and looking at uh, in Innisfil and, and maybe with Orbit, but also more broadly. Uh, can we talk about that for a minute? Some, some really exciting initiatives, you know, with different organizations out there and, 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 you know, sort of capitalizing or, you know, creating an alternate revenue stream from your airspace. Is it a doable thing? Like the, the ultimate goal is to, to bring in revenues that can reduce the tax levy and the burden on the taxpayers. So, as, as we move to, you know, to the air deliveries, as Amazon's taking off in, the, in, a, in a COVID world, you know, can those deliveries be done by, by drones, right? That's the ultimate question. And then what control do we have over our airspace? It becomes, you know, in theory, the, there's, you can put these drone air matrices, matrices into your airspace. And when someone flies over, you can ding them with a toll, just like Highway 407 across Toronto. So it's really, it's doable. It's, it's being experimented now and we're exploring that sort of delivery, delivery aspect coming into um, Innisfil airspace. There are regulatory issues with Transport Canada and Nav Canada, who owns that airspace? You know, they have to relinquish that, that uh, authority over it back to the municipality. So those are things that are going to take some time. And uh, it's, that's more of a legal opinion and cat, and that's probably where we call it, where it call on you to, to weigh in on that kind of thing. But it's something we're exploring, um, you know, to, to monetize it if it's a possibility. But we're also looking at, you know, taking the regular pharmacy, the shoppers drug mart in town, able to, you know, deliver, you know, drugs quickly to the seniors home down the street type of thing. So we are exploring all those type of initiatives really exciting to see if we we can make it work drone delivery is not new it's just it's new to innisfil and we're really definitely trying to explore it great and when, when you're struggling with those things mike i'm happy to introduce you to Catherine mccullough who has an expertise in uh, drone and aviation law um i don't know if natalie tim you have anything to add on that uh point um i will happily continue to segue into um other related areas but i'm pausing because i see tim's unmuted yeah, just briefly, you know, there's the there's the whole I won't call the legal side boring cat, but you know, there's that whole legal side and, and financial side to it. And then there's, you know, there's a physical space side as well, which I think Natalie will probably have more comments on. But, you know, how do we and this might be a theme of one of the questions moving uh, forward, but, you know, how do we future proof ourselves without overwhelming ourselves to, you know, to have these buildings that, you know, can have platforms, can have delivery areas, you know, can have roof space, et cetera, et cetera, and, and the flight paths in between them um, so that we're not missing out on those opportunities, you know, as those other challenges are met. Yeah, and to add to that, I think that's part of that behavioral shift that we're seeing in, in people and in society, right? The, the fact is that we're seeing a lot more online shopping, and, and um, I don't think that that's necessarily something that we have to discourage. Um, but, you know, uh, delivery vehicles are increasing congestion pretty significantly in cities. So I think drones are a, could be a great solution to that. And as far as like the building standpoint, right, we just need to be uh, aware, right, of, of potential noise hazards to building residents because you know, noise is really bad for mental health. So you want to be able to protect against that um, as well as any potential like wind pressure changes that are now going to be impacting, you know, especially glazed um, skyscrapers. Um, you don't want any uh, kind of wind pressures passing by them to, to knock glass or any other kind of building facade element off the building. But I think those are all things that you can resolve and work around through some of these types of drone regulations or um, policies. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had some great conversations with Catherine over air rights. Um, we consider air rights in the development industry a little bit differently than uh, when you're looking at sort of the, the drone usage of uh, or delivery um, by drones. Uh, but, but yeah, it's a very interesting space. Um, and also, I, I know we, we chatted a little bit about um, does that then impact SDC ratings for windows and things like that? So maybe turning to that um, 
and building on the earlier panel that spoke uh, about uh, drones uh, and, and the usage of drones within the construction industry. Um, what are you seeing in the future proofing or future planning for buildings for construction um, and that sort of thing? What, do you, what are you considering? Um, Natalie, what have you seen in your experience um, on the projects you've worked on? Oh man, that's a big one. I mean, it really, it can vary so much on the, the building use type rate. Um, hospitals, you always have to feature-proof to a certain extent. Um, and and a, lo a lot of time that's just by creating redundancy and just overstructuring the building. Um, in other cases, you know, a lot of our transit stations will actually create or build in knockout panels within um, the station. So you can easily expand or add wings or, or add bays to, to the different facilities and, and stations. Um, um, but I think it, even more than that, um, it's it's a conversation I think about um, cost to a certain extent. Um, some future-proofing practices are just good best practices, but we have to sometimes um, reduce or or um, kind of value engineer some of those things out just because of the potential increased upfront cost. And I think what's really important to know, especially with future-proofing, sometimes it can be harder to predict what the, the economic value is of future-proofing, um, but it, it, it can you know, significantly um, reduce costs down the line. Um, and so I think that that's something in the building industry that we need to really be looking a little bit more at is um, accepting upfront costs um, a little bit more openly so that we can ensure the longevity and the durability of, of a building. Um, and that's not always an easy conversation to have with uh, maybe a developer uh, or someone who's who's not looking to operate and maintain their building. So um, I'm uh, kind of attacking your question in a lot of different ways, but um, yeah, I think uh, I think it's really just about life cycle uh, costing analyses and, and being better about understanding the costs of buildings over over the term of of their life. That's a really good point, Natalie, because, you know, that's sort of what I was alluding to earlier, you know, getting we're working with the developers, partnering with the developers, because the technology coming in is not necessarily cheap. So we need them to, to, to help embed it into those buildings that we're building, but even from a sustainability you know, initiatives, you know, it's cheaper not to do sustainability. So we create the business case and, you know, that's where, you know, I put my finance hat on and say, okay, can we create a business case? Like you say, Natalie, it's, it's more expensive now, but in the long run, it's going to be cost effective. And that's the positioning we need to have with the developers that we work with and partner with to create some of these initiatives that are gonna be enduring long into the future. And I think part of that too is, is planting the seeds, right? Is, you know, little things that we can do now to make big differences later. And, you know, a great example that comes to mind is Hudson Yards in New York City, right? Where a planner decades ago decided to, you know, leave a little bit more space between those rails for a structure um, to support development above. And, you know, now it's turned into you know, probably one of the biggest developments in New York's history, you know, and, and facilitated much easier in a way, um, you know, by those little decisions that were made decades ago. So, you know, that kind of stuff keeps me up at night because God knows how much I'm missing when I'm, um, when I'm going through some of this stuff. But, you know, at the same time, though, it's, you know, it's exciting as well. And, in, you know, the buy-in from the developers is important. And, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to talk about things like hyperloops and gondolas and, and all these other cool things that are probably going to show up in the next 50 years and, you know, not be laughed out of the room because, you know, there's that shorter term view, um, you know, without that life cycle cost attached to it um, that we really need to, to get our head around and somehow promote um, when we're incentivizing development and building out orbit. I was just, I was, just go ahead. 
<laughs> Sorry, I was just going to add one little thing, which is I think the scariest thing about future proofing is the uncertainty, right? Like, how are you supposed to know what you're future proofing for if you haven't built it yet or if someone hasn't even invented it yet? Um, and so that's where flexibility, adaptability, knockout panels, access panels, just preparing as much as you can for that uncertainty can be really challenging, but um, there are kind of ways to go about it. Yeah, I think just that flexibility and adaptability, I think I'm going to spin it back to the sort of municipal perspective. Like, we're lucky because we have an incredible council that supports these kind of things, you know, and Tim's, Tim's like really creative. We got some great ideas that we throw on the table and first, you know, is raise the eyebrow. But, you know, what I think from a municipal perspective, we're truly blessed that we have this council that we really supports these initiatives for us going forward. And they've embraced them all. I, I mean, I, I can't think of, you know, too many. They said, that's you're ridiculous. You know, you can't do that. So they, they embrace it. They encourage it. And, and I think that's what creates that organizational culture of innovation and creativity, especially in Innisville, because and that was my attraction to the town because they were so forward thinking the things they do, which has been really supported by a strong council that, you know, agrees with those and wants to be leading edge and think now for the future and for future generations. And that's what we're really seeing. Thanks for all that. I'm, I'm grinning. Um, I think you're probably catching on to why I'm grinning. Uh, between Natalie sort of saying, you know, I'm, I'm kind of addressing all these different points and moving in various directions and the three of us unmuting at the same time uh, to weigh in. This is a really uh, an exciting time in Innisville and, and an exciting time for, for all of us in, in embracing change and, and trying to figure our way throughout through this change. So I was actually struggling with going down and I'll tell you the two directions and then we can start on one of them. Um, I was struggling to go down the path of, you know, how to um, make decisions and weight considerations, uh, taking uh, into consideration um, climate change, health and wellness, um, and those very important, um, you know, decisions that are made around uh, those considerations. ESG, we heard about a little bit from Clint earlier today. Um, and then I was also thinking about the infrastructure and kind of from the ground up aspect of things like water, uh, things like um, energy. Um, and I think maybe let's start with the water energy infrastructure and then tackle the second part of this, but I don't want to um, constrain the discussion in any way. So please, whoever would like to get started. Just, just really quickly from my finance hat, I really, I, I love the conversation earlier with the Canadian Infrastructure Bank really exciting to see that that money's out there and and able to work with developers you know get that equity contribution the so a true ppp you know relationship and and to build this infrastructure and that's what i mean tim you can go more on the on the energy side and sustainability stuff some of the cool things we're trying to get into with the orbit for sure using that type of partnership and that type of financing from a federal level yeah thanks mike and you know the the other great piece about orbit is because of a small footprint you know you things are less expensive on the infrastructure side. So, you know, and, you know, between that and, and some of the more creative financing that's out there these days, I think it does open the door for us, you know, doing uh, doing things and including things like gray water reuse, you know, on a centralized basis. Um, certainly district energy is top of mind for us. You know, we haven't talked too much about sustainability yet, but, you know, are there, are there meaningful things that we can include now that, you know, that are quite easy to flip the switch on later to make a very large contribution uh, from a from a carbon neutrality point of view. And, you know, I think we need a lot more direction, you know, this week after Scotland and, and the direction the world is moving in in that regard, but I don't think it's any secret that we're going that way. So in the case of district energy, 
you know, yes, uh, you know, we haven't been in the district energy business before. Thankfully, it's getting more common now. And I think, uh, Kat, your firm's involved in, in some of those systems. But, um, you know, what are those, you know, we don't want to lose that opportunity. So, you know, a four pipe system, you know, has to go in now, uh, basically, you know, it's, you know, sorry, Mike, it's not going to make a lot of money in the short term. Um, but, you know, it is going to, it is going to pay dividends later when we can, you know, simply switch to a clean en cleaner energy source or a clean energy source. Um, that's more carbon neutral and, and have a huge effect all at one time instead of trying to go back and retrofit buildings uh, and convince people it's the right thing to do at that time. Yeah, but part, part of that, that calculation isn't just necessarily dollars and cents. It's also the reduction of the greenhouse gases and, you know, remove, reduction in, the, in, in the, the carbon footprint. And that's the hard messaging to get out there. It's not just dollars and cents. There's more to it in that equation. And to add to that, a lot that we're not currently paying for, right? There's there's a lot of environmental damage that's being caused by the way that we use our raw materials. And we're not, it's not being accounted for anywhere in the chain right now. Um, and so I think if we were to start doing that, we would be making very different decisions about carbon, about energy, about all these different things. Um, and, you know, the way I usually look at, you know, you mentioned health and wellness, but we're also talking about district energy. So I'm, I'm going to kind of bounce around a bit, but I think when it comes to district energy, something I've seen a lot about lately is, is that transitioning from fossil fuels over to um, electric renewable energy. And I think the biggest challenges that we're facing there is that it's gonna take time to really go fully renewable. Um, and we're really gonna have to rely on distributed district energy, which means we're gonna be generating um, energy, not just from big central plants, but now we're going to be asking residents, we're going to be asking companies, we're going to be asking developers, hey, pitch in here, give us a little bit of that renewable energy. And so that grid is really going to spread out a whole lot. Um, and that's that's infrastructure that hasn't really been built in yet at all. And, and it's really hard to kind of adapt it after the fact. Um, and even beyond that as well is what does that transition look like? Because right now grid systems are very mixed. There is a lot of, of natural gas being used in in um, in our electric grids, and so as a building, when you're building some, you know, a building from scratch, you have to consider it might be better to be gas right now, but we do need to be able to transition over into renewable energy or all electric in the future. And what does that look like? Do we pick out that electric stove right now? Do we get um, there's fuel switching is a big conversation in the in the, in the construction industry right now, right? Um, or do we just bite the bullet, make the whole building electric, um, know that it's going to increase our, our greenhouse gas emissions at the beginning, but that then in the long term, then that will will get the savings back. So um, that those are my two cents about district energy. Um, and then regarding health and wellness, I think that there are, are three things that people kind of take, um, uh, don't really fully um, take into account, and that's um, water quality, air quality, um, as well as, um, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the third one, but like uh, um, noise and, and other kinds of impacts. Um, as far as water quality is concerned, I think people aren't really understanding how um, our drinking water is, is affected. Um, in the United States, um, there are carcinogens that are found in 14 different wells um, all across a corn belt. Um, and a lot of that is coming from runoffs, right? So from highways, roadways, as well as um, uh, farmland. Um, but, you know, if you're using a lot of pesticides, fertilizers, all of that runs off and it eventually leaches into the groundwaters. And, and it, that's showing up in our tap water, it's, you know, and, it, and that's affecting health. Um, and beyond that as well, when it comes to air, I think the, the thing I hear the most often is we don't need to think about air filtration systems because we're in a 
in a suburban area or we're in a mountainous region and, and we have really pristine air quality. But what people forget is that indoor air quality can be two to five times worse than outdoor air quality at any given time. Um, and a lot of those air, air pollutants are coming from your buildings. It's coming from your VOCs, so volatile organic compounds. It's coming from uh, your pets. It's coming from your, your laundry. Uh, you know, if you dry clean, uh, dry clean provide, like off, off gas is a lot of formaldehyde. Um, and so those are the things that I think people sometimes take for granted that um, water quality isn't a given, air quality isn't a given. And so you do have to work for it. And as we continue to urbanize, if those topics are gonna become more and more important, and we're just seeing now with COVID, right, where you have COVID viruses that are being um, tacked on, right? They're, they're carrying themselves on the particulate matter um, that, that gets distributed around buildings. And depending on the kind of mechanical system that you're using, it could be, you know, traveling from the ground floor all the way to the 10th floor. Um, so um, I'm kind of now blabbing a lot, but um, I think uh, it's, it's safe to say, I think health and wellness is gonna be, um, I think a, a big, big topic of discussion in smart cities moving, moving forward. I'm going to borrow from uh, my partner, Michael Ledget, who spoke on the or moderated two panels earlier and say I could we could probably go on for two hours um, on these topics. Uh, but in the last uh, few minutes, and I can't believe how quickly it's run out. I knew it would run out quickly, but it's been really, really quick. Um, there's uh, related to the uh, P3 public private partnerships um, and, and engagement question for me. Um, maybe a different side of it, but is is that community engagement and community buy-in piece that I think is important and oftentimes um, in Ontario, at least from my perspective and my role in this industry, uh, a challenge at times. Um, I wanted to put that out there for comment, should you want to comment on that um, and really open up uh, the last three minutes to say anything in closing that you'd wanted to uh, mention uh, during the session as we sort of um, come up to the hour. Sure. I think yeah, I Mike's think, ready. Yeah, a community engagement is is absolutely critical. You know, I try and get those feedback loops and understanding and, you know, what we, 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 we don't call it, we reframed it, you know, from a smart city to an insightful city and, and trying to get insight on our residents to understand what they want, what they need, to give them the best services and the best they can. So that whole community engagement piece is absolutely critical, especially we can reassure because we really want them to embrace and trust technology because it's such an, a powerful tool to really impact their lives, not be fearful of it. And I think that's where community engagement is so critical to get that message out for sure. Yeah, and, and just building on that, you know, CAD, it can't be, it can't be a legislative requirement, which is what it is most of the time in, in our industry, it has to be authentic. And, you know, certainly that's what, um, you know, we're embedding early and often, you know, as we go through a secondary plan process for Orbit is, you know, getting that authenticity. And, you know, the other really interesting piece, and we could talk an hour on this is, you know, not only the existing residents who may or may not live in Orbit, but those future residents, right? How do we get the insights of the people we don't even know who are going to live there yet? And, you know, that's a challenge we're throwing towards the consulting team and um, very curious to see how that's going to turn out. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that, right, it's um, I think sometimes there's uh, this thought that it's public versus private. And, and I think that that can be a really um, uh, negative way of looking at it. Um, I think uh, the way of the future, especially with some smart cities where you're going to need a lot of hands on deck to really envision a holistic um, you know, uh, society and culture, um, you need everyone on, on hands and, and everyone brings different insights and perspectives. 
And so um, I think that that needs to be encouraged. And I think the public-private partnership, um, I think there's so much potential there in, in, um, in just providing equitable services to everyone. Consistent with our experience today, we've covered a lot of ground um, during this session. Uh, I think we somewhat touched on um, the information and communication technology piece, uh, but specifically if there's anything you'd like to add with respect to the internet of things, AI, um, and, and th that's a piece of the conversation, um, or any closing remarks, or I'll open it up before we wrap up. I think the AI piece is huge for me, you know, you know, my passion is AI and, and, and getting a schooling in AI and how to incorporate it across the municipality is, is really, really exciting to do, but to use it managely and do it and manage it properly and implement it properly, to, you know, once again, protect the privacy rights of residents, because it, it can be a very invasive technology. And I think that that comes back to the trust and embracing of technology, as long as you can prove you're doing it, you know, carefully and prudently. To, to preserve and respect your residents. And I, I think, I'm oh, sorry, and I think purposely too, Mike, you know, um, you know, not doing tech for tech's sake, but doing it purposely. And, you know, there's this really interesting concept coming out of Finland, you know, the 25 hour, seven day a week city, whereby, you know, the use of technology basically gives people, you know, that most fundamental thing back in their lives they can't get, and that's time. So, you know, if we can if we can use AI and use that tech to um, you know to make lives easier and and to move around, um, that's going to be a key part of Orbit as well. Great, Natalie, I'll I'll give you the last word on this. Please go ahead. <laughs> no pressure. Um, yeah, I think AI. We've just barely scratched the surface at it. Um, you know, it's it's still a, a technology that's evolving very quickly. Um, and when we talk about energy models, we have a saying: we say uh, garbage in, garbage out. Um, and so I think that um, to use AI effectively, and I think there's immense potential in AI, so don't get me wrong when I, when I say garbage and garbage out, I just mean I think that data collection and data quality is going to be so important in training our AI systems to make the right decisions. Um, and I guess I'll leave it with, uh, with a final thought there, which is, um, so Berkeley actually has a, a live uh, Google Doc, I believe it is, where they track all the different um, AI systems and, and potential equity mistakes that they've made. Um, and I think that that um, Google Doc is super important because it, it really touches on that, which is garbage in, garbage out. If you're, if you're providing long data and the machine is now learning bad habits, um, it's, not, it's something that we as humans, we know to be aware and conscious of like trying to correct our biases. Um, but a, a machine, a computer, AI, how are we going to teach it to, to question itself? Um, so I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Thanks, Natalie. That's wonderful. And I know um, you and IBI are doing a lot in this space with the Smart Cities Sandbox. I think a lot of themes came out of our conversation um, and, and things, you know, we didn't um, directly touch on. Fear seems to be a big theme in terms of, you know, not, not being fearful of either missing out or, or um, change really. Um, and I think that's part of the discussion as well. I thank you all so very much for joining us today. Uh, Natalie, Mike, and Tim, I thank you for your time. Dentons is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take and refrain from taking action based on its contents. Please see dentons.com for legal notices. Speakers from this podcast episode and any other professional in our group would be pleased to speak with you 
on today's topic or any other topic related to smart cities. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other episodes in our Smart Cities Chat podcast series.